0: If you're thinking about improving your life, take it from our guest who is delivering pizzas, made a huge improvement on his life when he made $50,000 from his first real estate investing deal. He did it without any experience, but it did require a little bit of money, even though he didn't use that for the down payment on the property. But he had to spend money and time to market and find that good deal. So take it from RJ Bates on what it took exactly to transform his life from delivering pizzas to making big checks in this episode. And if you've gotten any value from this podcast so far, please leave us a review because it helps us make more content to get you over the edge to financial freedom.
1: The Deal Machine REI Podcast. Everything you need to
2: know to get started in real estate investing.
0: All right. So we've got RJ Bates with us, the Viking wizard himself, who's doing 60 wholesale deals a month, which is something I just can't wrap my mind around. And uh, he's actually from Dallas, Texas, but he does deals all over the country. And I'm just curious, how the heck did you get started, RJ? It's unbelievable to think that you did zero deals at one time and have now scaled to 60 per month.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a crazy story. Uh, Me and Cassie, my partner, Uh, We were really good friends. We were both working meaningless jobs. She was a bartender. I had worked at Pizza Hut for eight years, worked from delivery driver up to general manager. And I quit that job. And uh, I became a cart boy at uh, the age of 26 at uh, just minimum wage job, literally spraying the golf carts off, just trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives. And uh, I was dropping Cassie off at her job. And she said, we should start our own business and i said that's a great idea and so uh instead of drinking you know 10 shots of Jaeger that night uh decided hey let's come up with a business that we're gonna we're gonna do and uh the, the first one was a failed idea uh but from there it led to us eventually uh doing insurance supplements for roofing contractors so when hailstorm hits a roof Insurance pays out $10,000, the roofer says, hey, you missed these five items, that equals $5,000. We were doing that for them and negotiating and arguing with the adjusters and then taking a piece of the pie on what we got them. Um, That led to eventually me saying, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, My employees uh, don't know how to talk to adjusters like a roofer, so at five o'clock, let's go out and sell some roofs, and we did that. That eventually led to someone saying, Hey, do you do remodels? I said, of course. So that led to me finding out, Hey, he was flipping a house and I found out what a wholesaler was and eventually I said, Hey, I want to learn more about real estate investing that led to me spending $65,000 on education, uh, to essentially just learn how to get deals off the MLS and sell them on Craigslist. But that's the, the short version of how our journey uh, from essentially 2010 to 2015 led to us learning what wholesaling was. And we went full-time wholesaling on January 1st, 2015.
0: Well, how do you describe wholesaling to somebody who doesn't know what it is?
2: Uh, the the simplest way is, is that we're finding a good deal and we're just selling the, the contract to an end buyer who's going to be a flipper or landlord. Someone that has an exit strategy and, and we're essentially just the the middleman. That's what I resonated with because I was a general contractor at the time, right? And I was a middleman. I had a customer and I had subcontractors and I was the middleman. And I said, hey, we could do the exact same thing here. We'll have a motivated seller, cash buyer. We're a middleman. That's a hell of a lot better than going to Home Depot to pick up a ton of sheetrock and paint and all the other stuff that we had to do when we were a general contractor.
0: Gotcha. And so I'm sure as a pizza delivery person and a cart sprayer, you didn't have a ton of money, but did you make a lot of money with the roofing? And is that how you were able to get into real estate investing? Because I know one of your biggest pet peeves is that people say wholesaling takes zero money.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> no, we we had no money. Um, and that's why it's a pet peeve of mine because I got told, hey, you don't need money. And unfortunately- it was both fortunate and unfortunate that I learned how to do deals off the MLS because that didn't require any money. Um, Although it taught us a bunch of bad habits for several years because I didn't know how to do direct seller marketing. Um, But the reason why I don't like that is, is because I just, I think it gives people a bad um, first idea that they could get into this without having a lot of operating capital. And, and even for something like deal machine or something that you could comp like prop stream or, or privy or whatever it is you use that costs money. And, and so over the course of time, I learned that the hard way, but no Cassie and I were dead broke. I mean, um, I think it was our third deal ever, uh, when we got the property under contract that was in Keller, Texas. We had to put $1,000 earnest money down. And here in Texas, you have to pay for your inspection period. It's called an option period. Uh, and that was $100. That left us with $11 in our bank account. Uh, and that was November of 2014. And And I just remember, you know, I had a, a two-year-old at the time staring at, hey, my two-year-old might not have a Christmas. Uh, and I don't know how I'm going to put food on the table. But we took the, the risk. And we ended up selling that deal and we never looked back. That was kind of our make or break moment was that deal right there.
1: What was your, what was your first, like, what would, what did you do to start marketing? What were you, what was your first stream of marketing? Like you had no, you had no money. So how did you market to buyers or sellers?
2: Yeah. So after a couple of years of doing the MLS deals. Cassie and I started going to local RIAs and meetups. And I was like, I remember one in particular is a big one. It was a Propelio event. There was like probably a thousand people. And we got in the car afterwards. I said, I think we're doing something wrong. Because everyone here is talking about all this direct to seller marketing. And we're only doing deals off the MLS. Mm -hmm. Um, And so our first step was direct mail. So we went into the to the from free to the literally most expensive version of direct to seller marketing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we got our teeth kicked in with the less than 1% response rate and all of that. But, um, it did help us, uh, learn how to talk to sellers. Um, the angry ones, the ones that were super motivated, it kind of gave us a fast, fast track there on, on how to do direct-to-seller marketing and also negotiating on the phone.
0: What do you think was the biggest driver for you when you guys were working those pizza and golf cart jobs? Was it the fact that you didn't feel like you had purpose? Was it the fact that you didn't have money for your you know, one, two-year-old's Christmas or was it just that you didn't like what you were doing?
2: Uh, I think it's deep down, I always knew that I, it was just a means to an end. Um, you know, when you're 18 and you move away from home and it's up to you to pay rent and your electric bill and your car payment and all of that, you just do whatever you, you can. Um, especially when you don't have someone that necessarily says, Hey, you should look at real estate or you should look at this as an opportunity, uh, to, to better your life. I just went out and I got a job. And then the next thing I know, eight years had passed. And, and for me, I always knew that I wanted to own multiple businesses. I do that back in junior high, you know? Um, and I think at some point in time, I just, the moment at pizza hut, when I had my own store and a guy from corporate came and he said, you're nothing but an over glorified shift manager. We should have never promoted you because I essentially had just taken over my restaurant and it was essentially a rehab project. That's what happens when a, a manager gets fired and you get promoted to take over. It's a flip. It's a rehab project. And he didn't know that. And I realized I'm not controlling my own destiny. I'm working for someone else and they really don't care about me. They don't even know my name or my story. Um, and I realized, hey, I, I yeah, I've got to do something better. So that's what drove me to, to wanting to do something like owning my own business.
0: That would rub me the wrong way if somebody ahead of me told me I was just a glorified whatever. Yeah, isn't that crazy? How
2: uh,
1: how anybody in this country? I think I think it's just something that time has just kind of like glazed over. Is the way that businesses operate and treat employees? It's it to me it baffles me every time because I've dealt with very similar things in in higher paying jobs. I'm like, why are people, why do people not recognize that the way you treat people matters and that they're not just another number? Like,
2: and I'll be honest with you guys. I quit. I mean, I didn't even call them. They just never saw me again. That's how devastated I was where I was like, you know what? If that's how you want to treat me, it's over. Yeah, I mean, it was like a bad relationship where I changed my phone number and I was gone and they never heard from me again because that's you how You don't owe them nothing. Devastated you I don't
1: was. owe them I, a two-week notice. That's out of respect. Not when you treat me like
2: I, that. I dedicated eight years of my life. There was at one point in time I worked 48 days straight for Gosh, that company. Dang. I mean, I, I did off. everything that they asked me to do and that's that's what they told me. And looking back at it, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a chip on the shoulder kind of guy. I was in sports. You know, if someone ever said something to me about you suck or this or that, it's like, okay, boom, got it. Um, and, and I use it even in competitions down in real estate. And I'm sure we'll get into that later, but um, the I inserted a chip on my shoulder and said, all right, if you don't think I could be a manager for a Pizza Hut, one single restaurant, uh, let me go show you what I can do open up your podcast app right now and leave us
0: a review and let us know what you thought of this episode it means so much because the reviews help us get in front of more people and the more people we can get in front of the more we can help them achieve financial freedom and we also get more energy to put more content out like this to help you so by leaving us a review it will give you more content to come to help you along on your journey thank you so much
1: Yeah, I was just about to say, how does that motivate you? But that to me, that's always the greatest advantage for anyone in a sales role is to have to be motivated by what people have said to you in the past, because it's like you they think that they're actually putting you down and that you're going to amount to nothing. And then it's like, I hope they see this at one point in time. I hope they see where I'm at now and are like, oh, man. Didn't call that. Yeah,
2: nope. you
0: didn't. You missed.
2: Exactly.
0: So back to the wholesaling. You got into it doing MLS deals, and I'm guessing, did you have your license, or were you working with an agent when you first started?
2: We were working with an agent, um, a couple of different agents. What did you tell uh, them? You know, that we were wholesaling. I mean, they essentially a couple of them became like somewhat a part of our team. That like became a part. We found newer agents that. Maybe didn't have a huge book of business. They were trying to find their feet, and that's what really allowed us to say, "Hey, this is what's going to happen. We're going to be uh, finding deals off the MLS. We need you to pull comps for us, tell us what the ARV is, and then put in as many offers as we as you can." And so we developed somewhat of a system uh, where you know we had people scouting the MLS, finding deals then they were comping it me and cassie were underwriting it and putting in the offers and then at the end of the day we were just sending out you know tens of tens of offers every day you know just getting as many as we could out there
0: well do you remember like how did you deal with the because that the boat they were listed on both sides so how do you do a wholesale deal when there's two agents involved how do you pay them
2: yeah so So on that, I mean, honestly, this is another thing, looking back at it, we were extremely blessed um, and I didn't realize it at the time. Um, I I ran into another person It was the first, one of our first clients that bought a a property from us and then he bought three in a row and then I sent him the fourth one and he said, hey, I'm I'm tapped out, I can't buy any more, but I'm a part of this network And he had just gone to an education program that essentially taught people to virtually flip and what they were telling people in California and Boston and New York was you gotta flip houses in Texas. And so that made it extremely easy where I was essentially just doing acquisitions and then passing them off to him and JVing and letting him do the dispositions. And then as far as dealing with the agents, I mean, the buyer's agent, they essentially never knew anything was happening. And a lot of times we were just doing double closes. So here in Texas, you could just do a pass through double close, um, cost you a little bit more, Um, you know, it's cost us roughly about $1,500 in fees, Uh, but we were getting really good deals. And so uh, it didn't really impact us that much.
0: All right. So let's say say a property was listed for sale for 300,000. Maybe it was like old, Uh, been on MLS for a few months. You Guys, get the comps from your agent, and you're like, Well, it could be worth 300,000 in perfect condition, but it needs work. So, what would you guys offer a low offer like 200,000?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember one in particular in Dallas, it was listed for 400,000. We offered 300 and then sold it for 350. That was a pretty normal transaction for us at the time. Um, older historic home, we did a lot of higher price points. It's funny to see the difference in price points and what we were doing because we needed that with those MLS deals. We needed a huge margin to be able to kind of let the, the seller swallow the fact that they were giving us such a price reduction from their asking price. Uh, you know, it's really hard to go get a $70,000 house and get enough of a price drop from their asking price to also build in your margin. So we were doing a lot of Four hundred to seven hundred thousand dollar houses. Uh, that was and and that's common in places like Austin and Dallas, uh, Phoenix, Portland. Those were a lot of the places that we we kind of cut our teeth in, and uh, that's how we were able to do it just because of the higher price points.
0: So on that deal in particular, your both agents would make three percent, right? Which would be about twelve thousand each, and then so you yep. then made about twenty two thousand.
2: No, no, no. They were still getting their 12. That came from the seller. We were just making 50. Oh, wow. So So that came, the 12 each came from
0: the seller and then you made the 50. Amazing. That's great. So is when you make a low offer like that, are you building rapport with that owner or is it just old school haggling? Cause it's actually listed and it's working through multiple agents.
2: Yeah, man this is 2015 2016 so this is this is old school we were just slinging the offers out there saying take it or leave it you know i mean that the agent that was you know in that case going to make 12.5 i mean um it was her responsibility to kind of explain that we could be a solution and kind of earn her commission at that point time she did a really good job of it um the one that we used here in, in dfw did a great job uh for us got us uh, many many deals Um, then we, you had different agents, you know, we had an agent for Phoenix, we had an agent for Portland, we had, uh, an agent for Maryland. So we, we had different agents across the the United States that we're using.
0: Gotcha. Do you still make offers like this today? No. Why not?
2: Um, because I, I now understand the power of direct to seller marketing and getting on the phone and truly understanding the seller's scenario. Um, if anyone's ever watched me talk to a seller, I, I truly do just offer a solution, regardless of if it's for if it's me or if it's somebody else. Um, I think I'm one of the few people out there that probably tells the majority of people like, hey, I think you should hire a realtor. I'm not the best solution for you. Um, instead of just slinging that low ball offer, I don't make low ball offers. Um, I'll make a realistic offer if I need to, but um i just i think the power of being able to have that uh intimate connection understanding their story i can't really do that on the MOS. and then also with being a wholesaler our job is to for our cash buyers is to provide equity and or cash flow to our cash buyers And the best way that I could do that is by going out and finding motivated sellers that feel like they don't have any other options out there. And, uh, I think that's why our volume has increased so much with deals.
0: Yes. And they, they don't have a lot of options because it's not good enough to put on the MLS. They don't have a lot of time to wait, right?
2: Yep, That's exactly it. And then also the, the scenario of, uh, if, if it's something like, for example, I've got a deal under contract right now, seller finance in North Dakota, I might keep that I might wholesale it. Uh, that's not a deal that I would have ever gotten or uh, been able to negotiate the seller finance. It would have been extremely difficult for me to get that off of the MLS, uh, the sub two deals the same way. And I, I know that there's a lot of education programs out there. Pace is a, a good friend of mine. And I know he talks about agent outreach and and how you can kind of negotiate the creative finance through uh, realtors. Uh, But I just I think it's better for me, at least. I understand it better with hearing the the seller's story and then offering our solution, whether it's creative cash or whatever it is. Um, the, The power of that is just unmatched.
0: Gotcha. And so for those that don't know, like seller financing and sub two, are strategies that you can use when somebody's in a tough situation but they don't have enough equity maybe they owe more on the house than what it's worth right uh so you couldn't do a wholesale deal there's no room there and we don't necessarily need to get into it because i think when somebody's just starting focusing on one strategy is going to be your best option
2: absolutely you see that uh little hedgehog right there that's a gift that's a gift from uh eric brewer uh the first thing we teach at our education program is come up with your hedgehog concept. It comes from Jim Collins book, good to great. And what it essentially means is is come up with one thing that you are going to become great at. And for us, our hedgehog concept is nationwide virtual wholesaling. So it's not flipping. It's not being a landlord. It's not Airbnb's. All the shiny objects is what can kill your business. And, uh, that, that was our biggest mistake that we've made. So I, I think you're going to ask me about that in a second, but that's why I have that hedgehog right there is because Eric gave it to me because I preach it all the time. Focus on one thing and become great at that.
0: All right, so nationwide virtual wholesaling is your hedgehog concept. What was your biggest mistake? What did you get distracted by?
2: Yeah, it was 2018, 2019. It was, hey, we could wholesale this deal and make $20,000 dollars or we could buy it because now I have relationships with people that loan me money and we could flip it and make $60,000 or we could keep it as a rental. And so essentially I went into cookie monster mode. I, I bought everything, bro. I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, Uh, We we made relationships in all of these different locations in the United States, like Hawaii was my childhood best friend, had another good friend up in Alaska, the realtor that we were using in Phoenix, we all said, okay, we're gonna set up these separate entities and we're gonna start buying houses. So at one point time, I mean, we had like 15 flips going on in Hawaii, 12 units in Alaska. Uh, 12 deals going on in Phoenix, 35 plus in Fort Worth. This is owned, like we were flipping or keeping them. Uh, we we had a 68 property portfolio in St. Louis that we bought uh, that every house needed to be rehabbed. And essentially I, I tried to bankrupt us. I mean, and I was a, a terrible leader because um, I was like, I'm doing great at what I do. I buy the houses and I get us the money. Everybody else, your job is to make sure you take care of the flips and, and get these taken care of. And we had no SOPs. You know, they're standard, standard operating procedures. We we had no plan. It was just, hey, we're a good wholesaler, so surely we'll be a good house flipper or a good landlord. And we weren't because we weren't ready for it and, and we didn't grow organically the way that we did the wholesale business.
0: Man, the fact that you said you you tried to bankrupt you, I'm just so curious how you dealt with that personally, because in my business for the first five years, it was like a hockey stick. And then at that point I hired 20 extra people that I thought would help continue to grow my business. Funny enough, we kind of hit a growth ceiling around the same time. And I raised our expenses up so much that we were making $0 on millions of revenue. And I had bills to pay. I have a business partner who just had a baby And I went through a really tough time for nine months because my self-worth was the business. And I didn't even realize it until this thing happened where I made a mistake. And so I'm curious, like, how did you deal with that?
2: It was really difficult, man. Um, I I had a lot of people that were close to me. Um, They told me I needed to stop doing the podcast. I should never post on social media. You know, you're just, you're always bragging and it's a lie we're out here losing our ass and, and you're, you're talking about, well, this one deal that we made money, but then, you know, we lost twice that much on another two deals. And, and I, I didn't quite know how to handle it, but I knew one day, I knew I was never going to give up. And, and I knew that it wasn't because I wasn't giving effort and I didn't care. And I think that's where a lot of times people kind of put their head down and say, um, I failed and and so I'm just going to run away from the problems and we had to have a lot of serious conversations with private money lenders, um, ask for grace and understanding. Uh, we had to be put on payment plans with some of them to, to get them paid back and just get back to what got us here and and that That was the initial 50 deals, 50 states, 50 day challenge in 2020 was me saying, wholesaling is what we succeeded at. Let's get back to that. And that is the first step that we took to changing the tide Uh, because 2018, 2019, I did everything I could to kill us. And then in 2020, I gave everything I could to, to save us.
0: Man, I can't imagine. And the good thing about wholesaling though is it it is a it does cost money but it is less risk than buying all these assets all over the place. Now your hedgehog concept, I know that we're bringing this episode to an end. The hedgehog concept of virtually wholesaling everywhere is really interesting to me because you could just do it in Dallas and then now you're also doing a 50-day challenge, 50 deal challenge in Vermont, right?
2: Well, it's it's 50 deals in 50 states in 50 days. So every day I'm in a different state, uh, but essentially, so that, that initially in 2020 was the first time I did it. Um, every day I tried to get a deal in each state. This time I did it a little bit different. I just changed it to where I said, hey, we're doing, cause we are doing marketing in all 50 states, cold calling, PPC, YouTube ads. Um, and so I'm just trying to get a deal in every state um, so far. Uh, Through 44 days, we're at 104 signed contracts and I think we've done 36 different states Um, the reason why we do virtual instead of just local is because I There is nothing that keeps me from being able to do a deal in St. Joseph's Missouri as long as I understand how to comp and I understand how to find buyers That's those are the two things if I can underwrite a deal if I can look at it and say hey Ryan will buy this deal then I I, Why shouldn't I be doing that because I know some people want to dig deep and listen There are a lot of heavy hitters here in DFW So I'm gonna be going up against people that have no problem Spending enough money where their average cost per deal is five six thousand dollars here in Dallas Fort Worth whereas Right now, I found mar- ways to market where, you know, average cost per lead right now is like $100. And then I'm getting a deal one out of every seven leads. So my average cost per contract is like $700. And then every now and then I can, I can cut into that. Um, that's the reason why I do it because I, I just had to train myself to get the skill set to be able to comp everywhere and find buyers. And when I was able to do that, it, it was just lights out.
0: It's inspiring because it can tell somebody listening that they can do a deal where they live, no matter where they live, because you're doing yep. deals all over the place and they're not even where you live. And so with that, I would recommend anybody check out your challenge that's going on right now. It's on your YouTube channel. Just look up RJ Bates, YouTube, and it's actually RJ Bates the third. And uh, you you, you can find RJ's challenge there. And would you like them to follow your Instagram too or where else? I I've seen a lot of TikToks that go viral.
2: Yeah, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. I post all the same stuff there. I will say YouTube, if you're good with longer content and you really want to see what this business takes from an acquisition standpoint, uh, you literally see me for eight hours right here Away. I mean, yesterday was brutal. I mean, I there was a couple of hours where it's like no one answered. It was voicemail hell. But if you want to do this business, you need to understand that this is what it takes. Um, it's not just the glory of, hey, I've got 100 contracts. It's the, the people yelling at me. Some guy called me a dumb yo-yo yesterday. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. It almost um, sounds like
1: a compliment.
2: <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost, almost. And you're resilient; uh, you
0: just bounce back.
2: But yeah, if you're good with longer content and and you really want to see what it takes, that's why I put it out there, where you can sit there beside me. I know there are many people that are doing their acquisitions on their computer for eight hours a day, while I'm on their uh, one of their monitors doing my acquisitions. And it's really cool to see that. That is
0: so cool, and you're going to get on the phones right now. So we're going to sign off. Thank you, RJ. We really appreciate it. And good luck on the phones today. Thank you, guys. You're welcome. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Deal Machine Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please leave us a review and follow along wherever you're listening to your podcast.